Today we're looking at Revelation's four horsemen that reveal why are there so many denominations. Now we're going to answer that question best we can today. And then tonight at 6 o'clock, Revelation's Lake of Fire. And if you've ever wondered, does that fire, is it burning now? Does it go on forever and ever and ever? And if you've ever had a problem with this idea of a God that just burns somebody forever and ever and ever, I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to come to hear the message uh, that we have in God's Word about the lake of fire, because I believe it's a wonderful message. And so you're not going to want to miss that tonight at 6, and it comes with supper. So who wants to miss that, right? But today, why so many denominations? Have you ever wondered that? If there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we find that in Scripture. If, you know, the Bible says the same thing in mine as it does in yours, how come we have so many denominations? Let's suppose you move to a new city, as some, many of you have done before, and you try and figure out, okay, where should we go to church? How do you decide where to go to church? That can be a challenging thing. You might get this brilliant idea. Well, let's go to the phone book and let's see what some of the options are. Oh, my. There is a huge section of churches in the phone book. Anything and everything under the sun. Well, we're going to have to visit all those to find out which one's the right one. Oh, my. Now, maybe you've heard people that have basically done that. And they bounce from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. But there's so many options. You have the Church of Christ, you have the Christian Science, you have Christian Reformed, you know, and that's just in the seas. I mean, you can go all the way through, and it's a very long list. If you haven't done that, maybe you could do that this week. Go look in the, in the phone book. There are plenty of options. So how do you choose? The average person is bewildered by this confusing array of churches. And I think it's a fair question. Well, first and foremost... And here's a slide. Have you ever wondered, how, how can I find truth? Well, I would tell you that if you want to find truth, rather than go to different churches, go to God's Word. This is where you will find truth. And I've heard of people that have read themselves into the church, meaning they find the truth in God's Word. And I think that's what this next slide talks about. You go to the Bible to find out what truth is, then find a church teaching in harmony with the Bible. That's what I would encourage you to do. There are all kinds of, of methods out there. Well, I want to go to the, the popular church where most of the people are going. I want to go to the church where there's most young people going. I want to go to the church that has the nicest facility. I like this church. It has valet park, parking. I like that church. It, you know, whatever it is. And there's a whole list. I would submit to you that most of the things on the list today have to do with me as a consumer. Is church, was that ever supposed to be me as a consumer? Well, at my church, they do this for me. At my church, they do that for me. At my church, I, I'm able to get this. At my church, I'm able to get that. I remember on, was it a far side or something? You remember those little calendars and everything else? And in this far side, it said, well, I go to the generic church. The generic church? Why do you go to the generic church? Because we only had to pay 9% tithe. Oh, Okay. <laughs> It's this consumerism approach, isn't it, to church? And I think back to, to the statement, ask not what your church can do for you, 
but what you can do for your church. So yes, certainly you want to look for truth, the church that has the truth, and find a church that lines up with the truth. But then beyond that, you want to ask, where's a church that I can put in the gifts and the talents that God has given to me? Maybe there are churches that are just brimming with talent, and then there's some churches that really have some, some real needs. And you say, you know, I think maybe we could fill some of those needs by God's grace. And you pray about it. But I would submit that we need to choose a church, one, based on God's truth, and two, what could I do in this church? How could I be part of this church as opposed to what's this church going to do for me? Does that make sense? And so we need to search out the scriptures and find which one has the truth. Now, they all claim to have the truth. I don't know of any churches that put on their sign, come to our church, we have 98% of the truth. They don't put, they, no, no, we have the truth. And I think some people, they go to the yellow pages and they get so overwhelmed, they say, you know what, I threw all that away, I'm non-denominational. Don't talk to me about a denomination, I'm non-denominational. That's like the no-name restaurant. That's a name. No, it's not. It's no name. Yes, that's the name that you registered for your restaurant was no name. No, there's no name. You can go round and round and round and round all you want. Bible prophecy, I believe, clearly reveals why there are so many denominations. And we're going to look at that this morning. Amos 3, verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to who? His servants, the prophets. That's right. And so God, I believe, reveals through his prophet again this question we're asking. Revelation reveals why there are so many denominations. And so for that, we are going to look at the four horsemen that reveal the future of Christianity, that unmask and tell us a little bit about what's going to happen. Revelation's four horsemen represent four successive ages in the history of the church. Did you know that? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. It's been there all along. And it talks about how Jesus opens the seals of this prophecy. And so let's get into it. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now I saw when the Lamb, and who's the Lamb in Revelation? Jesus Christ. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And now, of course, we know Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We've looked at that already. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Now, if I were there, if I were witnessing all of this, if Jesus is there to open the seals and he says, come and see, I think I'd be paying attention. And so when we read this, I think we need to pay attention. And so as we continue on, it says, and I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Here we have a white horse. I would submit to you that white is a symbol of purity in the Bible. We even have that even today, don't we? A bride doesn't come down the aisle in an orange dress or a purple dress, certainly not a black dress. What color is it? A white dress, symbolic of purity. And so we see that even in the world today. It, it didn't need to be pointed out in that time that when 
Armies would go off to war if you saw them coming back. There was no text messages, we won the battle. There was no email, there was no nightly news, there was no nothing. But when you saw the commander coming home on a what colored horse? White horse, you knew that they had won or lost. Won. It was a symbol of victory that they had conquered. And it was a wonderful thing. And so, seal number one, we have a white horse, and we have a powerful, pure faith. You think about that time period, AD 31. After Jesus' death and resurrection, what happened to the church? Did it just peter out? Not at all. It grew. And the momentum only grew. It was a powerful faith. It was a pure faith. It was a conquering faith. The horse was white. And that continued for some time. If you look through history and in your history books, that continued. And they went to all over the place, right? In fact, Paul, well, here we have seal number one. We're going to add to that list. But Paul went preaching everywhere. And that's a lot of what we have in the New Testament is when he, he talked to the church at Corinth and talked to the church at Philippi and at Ephesus and all these various places. And the church is growing rapidly all throughout the then known world virtually. Now, does the devil like this idea of this message going around the world? No, he does not. And so he's going to come up with a counterfeit. One Roman historian wrote this, you Christians are everywhere. You're in our armies, in our navies, you're in the marketplace, in the shops, and you are in our senate and universities. You are everywhere. Acts 5.14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. It grew like wildfire, white horse, conquering horse for a period of time, but the devil wanted to stop it. But it appeared that nothing could stop the progress of Christianity in the first century. So what happens? Well, when men and women do not compromise truth in their life, the church has power. We need to stop and make that point. So often, I believe people get stuck in a rut. You know what I mean when I say rut? If I'm out driving in my truck... And all of a sudden, I fall in a rut, and maybe it's a muddy rut, and I'm spinning my wheels. Sometimes we use that expression. How are you doing today? I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I'm in a rut. I can't seem to get out of it. Oftentimes, in our Christian walk, we find ourselves in a rut, and I would submit to you, if you are in a rut, there is a good chance that probably it's because you're compromising in truth in some area in your life. You're not living up to the light that Jesus has revealed to you. And you sit there and you say, well, I want more light. I want him to reveal more truth into my life. Friends, if you want him to reveal more truth into your life, you need to live up to the truth that he's given to you. As you live up to that, then he will give you more and more and more. It's the same with our kids, right? We give them a simple task, and if they don't follow through on it, they're probably not ready for a more difficult task, are they? And sometimes we're in a rut, and we say, how can I get out of this rut? Everything feels stagnant. I would submit to you there's not total surrender. Not total surrender. One foot in, one foot out. You're kind of on the fence. Sometimes you lean this way. Sometimes you lean that way. And you wonder why God is not more real in your life. If that's the case, put both feet on God's side and see what happens. I believe that first period from AD 31 to 100, it spread so rapidly because virtually everyone had both feet on God's side. 
What would God do in your life, in my life, if we put both feet on his side? What would he do? What would he do in your Sabbath school class, in your small group, in your marriage, in your family, in this church family, in the world church? What would God do if everybody decided to put both feet By God's grace, I'm going to put both feet, I'm going to live up to every bit of light that I know to be true. I'm not going to compromise. I believe the church would grow rapidly. And in places where people are willing to do that, it's growing quite rapidly. I need to keep going here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, become a minister, then it will grow rapidly. Don't fall away from that. Continue to stay grounded in the faith, and you'll grow. But the devil didn't like that. He says, we can't have, have this going on. This is a problem. And so we have another horse. What color is this horse? Yeah, kind of reddish, isn't it? Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, continuing on. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to do to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Does this sound good? Not so good. And that people should be killed, or should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. I would submit to you that this is the blood-stained faith that begins at A.D. 100 and goes to 313. The blood-stained faith, the red horse, if you will. And it was during that time that Satan's strategy was to inflict persecution. And so during that time, you had coliseums. People would come and they would release Right? We have pictures of things like this, lions, and they would watch as people, as Christians, I should say, were persecuted for their faith. Not in some back room, but in a means for entertainment. How would you like that? I have tickets tonight. Let's go see some Christians get eaten by some lions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Other times, they were burned at the stake. Was their faith still strong? Yes, it was. Many of them were praying and were singing while all these things were taking place. And in fact, one of the the things, we'll get to that in a second. What's one of the phrases that we get from this period of time? The blood of the martyrs is seed. What does that mean? The more we persecute them, the more they continue to grow. This is a problem, the devil says. We can't continue to do this. We're actually inflicting You know, we're hurting ourselves in this process. We have to try a different means. Stop and think about it. When somebody is willing to be persecuted for their faith, they're willing to lose their job for their faith, they're willing to lose, uh, I don't know, prestige or or the, the praise of other people or any of these things, when they're persecuted in any way, especially physical persecution, the ultimate of persecution, do you take notice or you just, eh? You take notice, don't you? Elizabeth... Today for lunch, I'd like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Sorry, we're going to have soup. I want peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I will die before I, you know, if I went and made that statement, and then actually I do die. What happened? Where's your husband? He wanted peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) 
Would people take notice? What is it about Elizabeth's peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that are worth giving your life for? Now, Elizabeth's a real cook. She doesn't make peanut butter and jelly, but you get the idea. If you give your life for something, and then you give it away in a way where you are singing and praising the Lord rather than calling curses down on people, people take notice. And so the blood of the martyrs was seed. This is a, a church historian, uh, Eusebius, if that's how you say his name. We saw the most marvelous inspiration, a force which was truly divine, and the readiness of those who had faith in the Christ of God. Immediately when sentence had been pronounced on one group, another party came forward before the tribunal, acknowledging themselves to be Christians. They weren't expecting this, were they? They thought it would snuff it out. Everybody would be afraid, and they would hide and cower in fear, but that's not the case. And remaining unmoved before dangers and torments of all kinds, indeed, they reasoned with joy the final sentence of death. We'd rather die for our faith than to compromise. Wow. We need that today, don't we? We need that today. Death first. We don't say that very much anymore. What are you willing to die for? Let me just ask you, what are you willing to die for? If not peanut butter and jelly, what? Is there anything you're willing to die for? Or are you willing to do whatever it takes to look after number one? A lot of things have capitalized on this in the media. What would you do for a million dollars? Whole shows have been built on this whole premise and this whole idea. What would you do for a million dollars? Would you go out on some deserted island? Would you lie, cheat, steal, stab people in the back? And then would you reason, well, it's okay because I want the million dollars? Interesting and sad. At what point do you sell out? <clears throat> they sang hymns and offered thanksgiving to God of all until their last breath. Powerful. So the devil had to come up with something else. This red horse, this blood-stained faith was not working. It was working against him. And let me submit to you, if you think that just because bad things are happening to you, the devil is winning, think again. Sometimes the most powerful messages and the most powerful sermons ever preached are when bad things happen to you and to me. But we stand for the right, even though we burn at the stake and we have no idea why God didn't deliver us, but we're singing praises to him. People take notice. People take notice. Seal number two is the red horse, the blood-stained faith. Are we going in circles? I don't know. We have another rider spoken of in Revelation what color is that horse? Black horse, the compromised faith. Oh, my. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and beheld, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. Scales, this idea of judging. He judged the people, and unfortunately, I believe he found them wanting. There was some compromise in the church that crept in. Satan's strategy. And we can apply some of that to today as well. Compromise. Compromise. It's a good thing. 
I want peanut butter and jelly. She has soup. It's going to be soup and sandwiches. Compromise. Now, please don't everybody bring me peanut butter and jelly. That's really not my favorite, but you get the idea. <laughs> Compromise can be a good thing. But can it be a bad thing? Absolutely it can. And so Satan introduced compromise into the church. They started to adopt pagan practices to try and make it more palatable, if you will. White horse is purity and truth. Black horse, I would say, is the opposite of white and is compromise or error, and it's mingled in. It's still in the church, but it's error in the church. It's a black horse. And we see that in the church from 3.13 to 5.38. Acts 20, verse 29 and 30 says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will, will come in among you. Where are they? Among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, in case you missed it the first time, among yourselves men will arise up and speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Compromise. People among you, just because they're here, doesn't mean, right? People among you, compromise. And so we see in the church the teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings of God. In the church. Compromise. God a little, man a little. Straddle the fence. Foot in both camps. We won't be purely pagan. That'd be terrible. We're not going to be purely God. We don't want to be one of those holy rollers. That'd be terrible too. We're just going to have an even balance. We're supposed to be balanced in all things, right? Balanced in paganism and, and, and spiritual things. Balanced in truth and error. Just a little bit. One of my favorite children's stories is a mother that made cookies. No, let me back up. This mother, her kids wanted to go see a film, also known as a movie, and the mother wasn't so sure she liked them watching this movie or this TV show or whatever it was. Hardly matters. And the kids had this case. Oh, Mom, it's mostly good. It's got a lot of good stuff in it, some good points. It really makes a good, you know, there's just a lot of stuff we can learn there. It's, it's historical. It's true. It's all these things. And he says, yeah, but I've read about it. And there's these other things that I just, I don't feel comfortable with, especially this one main thing. Mom, that's a small part of the thing. I want to watch all the rest of it, the good stuff. Let me think about it. So Mother went back to her kitchen. You've heard this story. It's a good story. She goes back to the kitchen and she makes herself some chocolate chip cookies. But what does she do before she bakes them? You know what it is, right? You've heard the story. I mean, we have great ingredients, organic ingredients and lots of sugar. Cookies. She goes out to the yard and they have a little dog. Maybe it's like our dog, Jack. And she just gathers up just a tiny little bit. She probably had a napkin. It probably went more like this. What do I have? Poopy. <laughs> Chocolate chip and poopy. <laughs> she takes it back inside. I mean, this is just such a shame. Now, I do love chocolate chip cookies. And she puts it in there and mixes it all around. Just a little bit. 
I mean, it wasn't even, but it was a tiny, just a tiny bit. And she puts it in there and mixes it around. She puts it in the oven. Oh, the house smells amazing. Chocolate chip cookies. And the kids have been playing hard and they run inside. Oh, mom, what smells so good? I want some. Can I have some? Oh, sure. No problem. But just, just one for right now. I don't want to ruin your supper. And so they all grab one. They're about to put it in their mouth. And then she says, but there's one thing you need to know. Stop. Mom, what? I'm hungry. Well, there's something you need to know about the chocolate chip cookies. And she went on to explain. I use some of the best ingredients and all on. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we know I'm We're hungry. Can we take a bite? And then she said, but there's also something else in there. What? Dog poopy. Oh, mom. <laughs> Why would you do such a thing? In your own, like, bowls and in the, in every, what? Well, I didn't think you'd mind. Oh, mom, why did you think we wouldn't mind? Well, it's just a little bit. The rest of it is so good. Get the point? Compromise. Compromise. Don't worry, I don't have a picture of dog poopy in my notes. <laughs> Daniel 8, verse 12, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Talking about the church. Says in Development of Christian Doctrine, page 372, we are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred it into the outward adornments to which they had been accustomed in their own. Now, think about this. We have a lot of this going on today, too. Well, I just want to win over the heathen. We don't call them heathens anymore, do we? I brought a heathen with me to church. No, we don't say that. We say unchurched. And the, the thinking goes, if I'm going to win over the unchurched, I have to create a service that is palatable for them. And so we bring in all kinds of things into our church. Things that they feel comfortable with. Music that sounds just like the pop music they've been listening to all week long or the rock music they've been listening to or whatever else. They get rid of anything that feels churchy because that, that might make them feel, well, you know, condemned or something. So we're going to meet in a warehouse or an art museum or whatever. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I wonder if we're bringing in some compromise into the church in order to make it more palatable. You see where I'm going? And we need to be careful of that. We're calling them to something different. Not the same, but just a little bit different. No, completely different. That's what we're calling them to. Now, I want to be sensitive to their needs and do everything that I can, but at the same time, we should be different. We should be distinct from the world rather than follow this idea of Constantine. And we might be able to pack the house with our concerts of big names of people that sound just like whatever, but does that mean that they're really getting the meat and the message and the truth of God's word? Not necessarily. And so we need to be careful of how we do church, even in our time. So salvation through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church, and we see that in history. It's not salvation through Christ. You have to go through the church, and the church monopolized everything. You come through us, and largely it had to do with some money. We end up getting to that too. But Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. As soon as you pay for it, it's no longer a gift. 
Daniel 7, 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. We've already dealt with this a little bit in our seminar. So here we have the law of God written with his own finger in stone, expression we still use today to mean it's permanent. And we're going to replace some of that with the traditions of men. Not all of them. Calm down. Calm down. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Yet we see that being thrown out. We have cults of Diana and Isis, two female deities, made it easier to evolve into the veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So here you have these pagan symbols, and we're just going to kind of baptize them, if you will, and make them Christian symbols. We have other examples of that. St. Peter, this is in the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, actually wasn't St. Peter to begin with. You know what he was? He was the pagan god Jupiter with the sun over his head. But we're just going to baptize him and we're going to call him St. Peter. Interesting. Don't make any graven images. Well, we'll just take that out. We'll just... Because after all, we need to try and meld. We need to bring these groups together. And you end up with something that really is not distinct from either one. Daniel 7.25, they'll think to change times and laws. We're going to be dealing with that even more this week uh, in a significant way. There's only one of the Ten Commandments, as long as we're talking about the law, that deals with time. The Roman church's version of the Ten Commandments is different from God's version written on tables of stone in Exodus chapter 20. You realize this. They don't try and hide it. I mean, they're the mother church. They can do what they want to, according to them. But if you take the Ten Commandments, they take out the second that says the veneration of images. You know, you're not, you shouldn't bow down to images, I should say. They say, no, that doesn't really fit with what we're doing. We're just going to take it out. Well, then how are you going to still have ten? Because you can't say we believe in the Nine Commandments, right? So they'll split the ten into two, and they'll move everything else up. So the Sabbath is now the Third Commandment, and so on. And so it reads something like this. So shall have no over gods before me. That's not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And then we go straight to remember the Sabbath, honor your parents. You get towards the end, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, because that's completely different than thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And so we're going to make that two different commandments. Think to change times and laws, it says in Daniel. The Roman church and the Roman state united to make Christianity more acceptable to the world. That Christ still exists today. We need to make the church more acceptable to the world. What ends up oftentimes happening, the church becomes more worldly. The church becomes more worldly. And I would submit to you as far as winning people for Christ, it doesn't work. Because people come in, they say, oh, that sounds exactly like what I was jamming to on the way here. This is exactly, you know, the people are here, they don't, they don't speak any different. They use the same foul language as the people at work. Oh, the people here, and they don't see any difference. And they say, you're telling me I need what you have, but I already have what you have. Why do I need what you have? I already have it. And so I would submit to you it doesn't work. In history, we have shown that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Apostolic Creed, 
Book 7, section 2, it says, O Lord Almighty, thou hast created the world by Jesus Christ and hath appointed the Sabbath in memory thereof. The Sabbath is a memory of what? Creation. We talked about that already. But it's been forgotten. Genesis 2, verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. We talked about how God blessed and how he sanctified and how he rested as divine example only on the seventh day Sabbath. That's the one he tells us to honor. He doesn't do that to the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth day, but only the seventh day. If God says it, then I think we need to follow it. And we need to do it. But during this age of compromise, the pagan's day was of the sun, and so it was replaced with that of the Bible Sabbath, or the seventh day of the week. History of the Eastern Church, page 184, says the retention of the old pagan name of Dies Solis for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of pagan and Christian sediment. Continuing on, without which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine and his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. So Satan's master strategy was to influence powerful church leaders to unite with powerful state leaders in the black horse period. Church and state are going to come together. They're going to unite. They're going to come together in a way that's quite dangerous. Here's another question here in Doctrine of Catechism, page 174. It says, question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals or precepts? Really, use a church by itself how can you prove these things that you're able to institute festivals and precepts? Answer? Oh, it's really quite easy. It doesn't say that. But it says, had she not had such power, could she not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her? And what would that be? She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday and the first day of the week for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. What is all that saying? It's saying the proof's in the pudding. That's what it's saying. The second theme of the day is, the food, is food, I guess. I don't know. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, cookies, pudding. Are you getting hungry yet? It says the proof's in the pudding. How do you have authority? Well, we changed it. There's no Bible authority to change it. Point to any place else for the authority to change it other than the fact that we did it because we do, in fact, have the power and authority. It's interesting. It's interesting. So you have the worship of the sun and pagan worship mixed with uh, worshiping God and creation and all of that. So the black horse is a compromised faith. Now this isn't just a history lesson, I hope. This is something we can apply to you and I, right? The white horse is when I'm sold out. I'm sold out. The red horse, I might even be persecuted. And somebody here might say, I feel like I'm going through persecution. That's okay. God can be glorified. And you can grow as a Christian through persecution, sometimes more than any other time. And then thirdly, we have a black horse. Sometimes we can find ourselves compromising our faith. And it doesn't end well when we do that. But then we have this fourth one. So I looked and beheld a pale horse, and the names of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. 
and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Here we have this pale horse, a dead faith, has the form of godliness but completely denying its power thereof. It's just an empty casing. It was during this period in earth's history that all these buildings rose up, right? Why? Because people, if they wanted forgiveness for sin, they had to come to the church, and if they wanted to get somebody out of purgatory, they had to pay lots of money, and as they paid lots of money and put them into the coffer, then all of a sudden the church had lots of money and was able to build themselves up and make these beautiful cathedrals. Now, they're beautiful until you realize how they were paid for, is my humble opinion on that. Church history says Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the dark ages, as we refer to it, might be termed as baptized paganism. We're just going to take the pagan practice, we're going to baptize it, we're going to put church language around it, we're going to have the priest doing it or whoever else doing it, and that will be baptized paganism. Worshiping on Sunday rather than on the seventh day is baptized paganism. Calling it St. Peter instead of Jupiter, baptized paganism. Having to pay to pull somebody out of purgatory rather than I'm saved by faith through grace in Jesus, or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that's baptized paganism to go the other way, and now I have to pay and all the rest. I thought it was a gift. Now I'm paying. So the fourth seal is this pale horse, this dead faith. And it goes from 538 to 1798. We're going to break those dates apart a little bit more this week. But we have a significant union of church and state power during that time to where the church is deciding things rather than Scripture is deciding things. The church is the final authority rather than Scripture is the final authority. And Christians, again, are under severe persecution. It's a time of dead faith. We have steps to compromise. One, traditions. Well, why do we do it that way? Because we've always done it that way. Where's the biblical authority for it? Well, we don't worry about that. It's tradition, they say. Then there's penances, which took the place of Jesus. Then you have indulgences. You want to get out of purgatory? Just come and pay your indulgences. What, what really is incredible to me is that you could pay indulgences for sins you hadn't committed yet. You know, it's Sabbath afternoon, I'm in church, I'm doing the right thing, but I have to remember to give the pastor a hundred bucks because I'm going to party tonight and I'm going to have fun. Maybe I'll give him two hundred bucks because I want to live it up! Really? Yep. No problem. As long as it's cash. Yep. Have fun. You're covered. Wow. Or if somebody passes away and they didn't make the right choices, the right decisions, you could pay for them, right? We call that purgatory. They weren't quite bad enough to to go to hell but not quite good enough to go to heaven, so they're kind of in this in-between place. But we can pull them out of purgatory by paying for them. How are these cathedrals built? And what's the little jingle that they used to say? As soon as gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Beautiful. How would you like that for our offering call? 
how saved do you want to be? Well, how bad was he? Oh, let me write out. I'll give you an estimate and a quote on your passed away relatives, and you can come back tomorrow. But if you want them out of purgatory, you'll find a way. You'll find a way. So we have indulgences, is what they called it. And there they are, putting their money into the casket, as they said. And as the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Then you have images, the veneration of images. Then you have church hierarchy. Who said it could be changed? Well, we said it could be changed. Then you have things like human dogmas. And it's just kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? I would submit in our lives, in my life, and in your life, it's a slippery slope too. You compromise in one small area. Small, small. No, I can't even hardly see it. And you know what? We're real good at comparing to somebody else. And I'm way better than that person over there. And I don't do what that person does over there. And this is just so small. But how does the downward path of compromise go? This is just still small. It's just a tiny bit bigger. Oh, we're still, it's still, it's still, it's still, I can still carry it, it's, and it gets out of control. Fight the battle where you can win it, friends. Fight it when it's here. Because eventually, when it's here and you're overwhelmed, you're just that, you're overwhelmed. Fight the battle where you can win it. Would God's truth be trodden down forever? And here's the good part. We've been going down this slippery slope of compromise, of people just losing. In fact, the Bible was lost sight of. Only the church could have it. And I would be the only one allowed. And you guys would not have any Bibles in your hands at all, and ladies too. And I would be the only one. In fact, most of the time I would speak in Latin so that you could only really not understand much of anything. And so for long periods of time, centuries, God's word was in the dark, the dark ages. But we have good news now because we're going to start coming back up out of the dark. Is that a good thing? So let's, let's go here. Um, it says in God's word in Jude verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning your common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Contend, fight for, engage with. Don't let it go. Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what we see happening with these Bible believers, the Waldenses. In northern Italy and southern France, there was a group of people that kept God's word alive. And you can go and and take tours. In fact, there's a place not far from here. It's in North Carolina, isn't it? It's kind of a replica of this. Uh, That sounds like a good idea. We should do that as a field trip sometime. But you can go and and take tours of their hidden Waldensian mountain villages. And there you can look inside some of these houses and you can see things like this, a table, a copying table. And they were really good at memorizing Scripture, one. No one can take Scripture away from you that's memorized. But they would also copy. And they'd write it down. And they'd give this book of John to this person here and they'd give this book there and then they'd change them around and that was the most precious thing to them and they would even sew their clothes with a secret pocket in in certain places where they could hide portions of scripture so God had his people that were keeping scripture alive during this time 
Here's this Bible copyist table made out of stone. It looks a little bit cold in there to me. How many of you have been there, by the way? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So the Waldensians are bringing back God's word and preserving God's word. Praise the Lord. Then you have John Huss. If we think about John Huss, he was from Prague, from Czechoslovakia, and he brought back this idea, obedience to God versus obedience to man. Now you might say, well, that's common sense. Well, it might be more common sense now, but it certainly wasn't common sense then. And he restores this idea. And he died for it, by the way. But he's challenging people thinking, obedience to God and God alone, not to men. <clears throat> so we ha- we're going to put Huss on that, that line as well. Then we have Martin Luther. We think of Martin Luther oftentimes, right? This is Pilate's staircase. He was concerned about his salvation for a long time. And he went up this staircase on his knees and saying prayers and all kinds of things. Still didn't give him peace. Finally, he's studying in God's word in Romans 1, verse 17. The just shall live by works. No, by faith. The just shall live by faith. And this verse just completely rocked his world. Continuing on, Ephesians 2, verse 8 this time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And then Acts 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. And he pulled these verses together, and he brought back this idea that we're not saved through the church, we're saved through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. By grace, through faith. And so we have him nailing these 95 theses on this church in Wittenberg. This is actually the, the church door. I don't know if those doors have been replaced or not. I don't know if that was over the top of it then or not. But this is where it was. Some of you may have been there as well. Again, restoring these pearls of truth that had been uncovered for so long. And so Luther brought us grace. But the light of God's truth would penetrate the darkness even further. God's not done. Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. And so just as it took 500 years for the church to go from the white horse of pure apostolic faith to the pale horse of the spiritual deadness, it took time for God's faithful followers to grasp glimpses of truth lost sight of down to the ages. And what you have is that each one of these reformers, if you will, created their own church. And they just kind of stopped there. But we're still making our way back. You see? And so when you have a church that takes something and grabs something as beautiful as I'm saved by grace through faith and just stops there, there's other truths that are yet to be uncovered. Are you following me? And so that's on the timeline. Um, But there's others as well. Uh, Who do we have next? John Calvin. John Calvin's in Geneva, Switzerland. His contribution. We need to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Not just a once done type of thing, but we need to grow in Him. He needs to continue to reform our characters. And so John Calvin brought us that. So he's on the, the list with growth. Uh, largely the, the Presbyterian church. And there's Calvinists and those kinds of things too. Great idea. But they stayed right there. There's still pearls to be uncovered. Uh, the pastor, this is the Mayflower John Robinson was his name, with these pilgrims. And he says this, If God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. Saying, continue on, grow. 
For I am very confident that the Lord hath more truth and light to yet break forth of his holy word. He says, I don't know it all yet. But as you get more light revealed in God's word, you need to accept it and keep growing in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Uh, <clears throat> they were burning and shining lights to the time, and they were penetrating not only to the whole counsel of God. Um, that seems too small. I'm going to turn back here. But were they now living would be as willing to embrace further light as that which they first received. So that's the idea is being able to embrace new light. Well, what's new light? It's when the scripture reveals something new that perhaps has been hidden for a long time. That's new light. It's not new light just because a preacher is saying it. So you have Luther and you have others, but they're still baptizing by sprinkling. It's not biblical. We haven't quite covered that just yet. But the Anabaptists discover that in Scripture, Jesus is baptized by immersion. Baptizo means to dip under, not to sprinkle, or any other form is to baptize with water. And so we have the Anabaptists that brought us and revealed the truth of baptism. And we could go on and on and on down this line. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're going to be baptizing to the end of the age. And so here is, we, is an example of... Uh, a baptism with water. And that's what symbolism is of Jesus' death and burial in the watery grave of baptism and being brought up into newness of life. Beautiful. Beautiful. John Wesley, he was another one that brought us, uh, his contribution was holiness and this Wesleyan movement. So Wesleyan, we put holiness up there. They're continuing to reveal truths in God's word to be committed within a family to allow God to transform how you do uh, things in your home. And God is calling us to a higher standard of Christ. Then you have William Miller. What was his contribution? Oh, well, he was an Adventist. No, he wasn't. He was another reformer. And God laid on his heart this idea of second coming, the advent. The advent. And so we have Miller on the list. We have the second coming. You see it pictured there. And then we have God's end time people. God's end time people. The Sabbath and the commandments. To be fully restored to their proper place. As God fully intended them to be. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we see truth restored. God restores the Bible instead of the dogmas of men. God restores Jesus rather than earthly priests and grace in place of works, the law of God rather than religious tradition. The Sabbath, he is restored instead of Sunday. Baptism instead of sprinkling. Resurrection instead of immortal soul. And second coming instead of this earthly kingdom. We see truth restored. Isn't that beautiful? Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. That's the gospel of that white horse, isn't it? To preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. There's another message that follows that that we're going to look at this week. 
It's a message to come out of her, my people. God has his people in other denominations. They have a part of the truth. And a lot of those things we have grabbed as this part and this part, this is biblical, this is biblical, and you grab them together to make the very best that you have. And the Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is set up to where we don't have creeds or anything else. If God reveals new light, we have a process that we go through to make sure absolutely this is what the Bible says, we accept it. Because that's our, what we're all about, is grabbing all of these things that are scriptural. Does that make sense? And so we're going to talk a little bit. In an age of evolution, God would restore the truth about creation. And we've seen this before. Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I believe that's why we have so many denominations. As they stopped. As there was this uncovering of the beautiful truths of God's word. And so, friends, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and we have Seventh-day Adventists all around the world. You can virtually go anywhere in the world. There are certainly places like Nepal where we need to have a lot more Adventists. There's no doubt about that. But virtually around the globe today, people are worshiping on the Seventh-day Sabbath in places like this, under a mango tree, what have you. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, not because of you, not because of this church and this beautiful sanctuary or the stained glass or anything else. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe it most closely follows this book. And if you can prove me, prove me otherwise, I'll do everything I can to convince you before I leave. If there is some truth that we're not following, then we need to do something else. But until now, this is the denomination that I have found that most closely adheres to the truth that we have in God's Word. That's the only reason. It's not because Seventh-day Adventists are friendlier. It's not because they're more involved in mission. It's not because their churches are, are more beautiful or anything else. It's not because of any of those things. It's because of the truth in God's Word that's upheld in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it's calling for people of every nation, race, tribe, background to become part of God's in-time people. Is it because we're better than anybody else? Not at all. All are welcome to become part. It only has to do with the fact that we adhere to this word. This is our only rule of faith and practice, period. And when we come across things that are challenging and difficult and hard, if we're ever going to choose between pleasing men and pleasing God, we always choose God. By his grace. We always choose his word. And so in a sense, I'm a Waldensian. Because I believe in the Bible and the Bible only. In a sense, I'm a Hussite, if you will, because I believe in obedience to God. In a sense, I'm a Lutheran. Because I, I believe in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, I'm a Presbyterian because I believe the organization the church has taught in the Bible and how we need to grow in that grace, and we need that organization. I'm a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. I'm a Methodist because God has called us to holiness. See, we're a conglomeration of so many of these things, and I'm an Adventist because I believe in the second Advent, that Jesus is coming again, and I believe it's going to be soon. I believe it's going to be soon. And lastly, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe that God never changed his Sabbath from the seventh day. That's it. That's it.
And God is inviting you and I to be part of his end-time people. He's inviting all of us. Will you follow God's word and the beautiful gems that have been restored? I don't know about you, but I want to say yes to that. I want to say, God, I want to follow you only. I want to follow your word only. I want to be faithful to you only. And not just in choosing a denomination, but in every aspect of my life. Now, that gets tough. But by God's grace and by his power, last week we talked about not just pardon that he offers us, but he offers us power. By his grace, I want that in my life. I want that in my life. And I hope you do too. We thank you that you have restored your truth through your people down through the ages. Lord, help us not to just grab one pearl or another pearl, but Lord, we want to put all of these truths together. As your word says, we want to be based on the Bible and the Bible only. We want to follow Jesus Christ and him alone. Lord, help us to that end. Help us to be strong, to be courageous, to be able to face persecution, to not compromise, but be sold out for Jesus Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.